We're in Mark chapter 6, starting verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, say, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with this request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Um, that is quite a lengthy passage and quite a disturbing passage. This morning... We're really only going to look at one the answer to one particular question. And that is, do we really trust God? Not just for that bit that has to do with heaven in the future that is mysterious for all of us. That is one type of trust. But I'm talking about the trust that's right now. That's when we're living it every day, when we get up and we're confronted with certain circumstances and certain rejections and certain things, do we really trust him at that point? And one of the reasons why I believe that Mark wrote these two stories back to back is because it was going to emphasize for us that it, regardless of circumstance, God is always setting the scene for us to make a choice. Every day of your life, circumstantially, you are going to have an opportunity to trust Him or trust what's going on and trust the people who are around you or trust the circumstances and bend to what everybody else is doing. We'll have more to say about that shortly, but I want you to see how 
closely these two passages are actually to, they're, they're tied together. Because we have a tendency, and I'll speak for myself, but we have a tendency to look at Scripture based on the captions and the headings, and they're nice and they're sectioned off in our Bible, and we say, this is where Jesus sends out the twelve, and this is the story of John the Baptist's death. And we look at them in these sections. But as I've said many times before, Mark didn't write a textbook with chapters and headings. What he did is, is he wrote a book, and, and he, as he wrote this, he had a stream of consciousness that was going out, and these are both very connected, and I'll show you where. Look with me at Mark chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus had sent out the two, um, the, the apostles in twos, and so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Now, two verses later, Word about what they were doing got to, got to Herod. Two verses. And it has to do with this theme of repentance. Now, repentance isn't a word that we use all the time. It's another one of these. I wouldn't call it a church word, which you know I, I kind of go off on every once and again. But it's, it's a word that we don't commonly use in everyday life. Repent is a military term. Military. It has to do with you're marching this direction, and to repent is to do an about face and go the other way. So when someone is preaching repentance, they're saying there are things that are going on in your life that you are managing your life that you're relying on, and you should be considering going a different way. Now, when we move on to the passage with Herod, there's no sugarcoating this. This is a difficult passage. At least it is for me. Hard as it is, we Christians have to admit that while difficult and sometimes impossible to completely understand why God allows certain things, we have to admit there are times when God permits horrible things to happen to His children. It's just a fact. As disturbing as it is. And John the Baptist, I might point out, is not some ordinary child like me. Jesus himself, when speaking of John the Baptist, said that of those born of women, there was never anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet, God allowed him to be killed in one of the more horrible ways I can imagine to die. So when I read a passage like this, I want to understand why. And if you're a student of Scripture for any time, you know that God doesn't always provide an answer as to why God allows certain things. But why would He allow such a thing to happen? And to me... It's a Romans 15.4 kind of reason. And if you're not familiar with that, it goes like this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that by endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have what? Hope. See, we have hope because we have a God who is in charge of the entire universe. And we believe that. In the circumstances that the apostles had, 
They had to rely, I'm going to have more to say about that in a minute, but they had to rely and trust on God because inevitably they were going to face rejection. It was just inevitable. John the Baptist was called to be in front of Herod and Herodias. And circumstantially, he was in a tough position. But the common denominator between the two of them was, in each case, they had to decide whom they were going to trust. Were they going to really trust God? Was God really trustworthy? Or were they going to trust in the way things are? Bending to circumstance. So let's pray and let's dive into this. Father, I'm humbled to have another opportunity to speak here. And um, I look forward to it very much. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me to convey a truth that helps those that have come here this morning to see that you are reliable, you are worthy, and you can be trusted no matter what things appear to be. And I'm grateful for that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So some context before we really get rolling here. Jesus and his disciples are now north and west of the Decapolis. They're in Nazareth, which is in the providence of Galilee. So if you like maps and you like to kind of get a sense for where things are, I've got a map for you here. And you'll recall in chapter 5, the Decapolis is where Jesus and the disciples encountered legion. Remember him? He had all the demons. That was in the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was a Greco-Roman province that, frankly, the Jews considered worse than Samaria. They just considered it horrible. And if you're familiar with the, song of the, uh, the, the, the story of the prodigal son, remember he went off to the pagan land to squander his inheritance? Well, do you know where that was? Decapolis. It was a really heathen area. So why am I bothering to mention this? Because the Decapolis wasn't considered Jewish to Jewish people. And the reason this is important is because Mark was predominantly written to pagans, to Gentiles. And while Gentiles could care less whether Jesus first came to speak to the Jews or this or that, in the synoptics, Mark cared that even though he wasn't going to give us nitty-gritty details to the degree that Luke did or perhaps Matthew, he was going to present the gospel in, an, in a way that complemented those gospels and made clear that Jesus' focus was first to the Jew, which is one of the reasons why they had to be in Galilee, because it was still a very Jewish province, and that is where he put the apostles out and sent them out in twos. So that's our background. We're in Galilee, and Jesus is sending out his disciples with the following instructions. Take nothing more than your staff, the shirt on your back, not two, one, and your sandals. No food, no bag, no money. Nothing but the shirt on your back, your staff, and your sandals. Now the first question you have to ask is, why would he do that? I know that would be the first question I, was asked. I would ask if I was an apostle. Really? We're going on a journey. 
All of you, this is summer. You pack up, you go to the beach. You take in just one shirt, your sandals and a staff, thinking no. That's not the way we roll. Why? Because Jesus wanted them to be totally dependent on God. Minimal provision, trust me, go out in twos, do as I told you. So what should they then do if the people didn't listen? Well, you should argue with them. You should try to humiliate them. And if they won't listen after that, you call fire down from heaven and you smite them. Oh, wait a minute. doesn't say that, does it? I'm sure that Mark was aware of James and John's encounter when Jesus encountered the Samaritans. Remember them? They, they, Jesus and his disciples wanted to cut through Samaria and they said what? No dough. No, you cannot. And James and John, let us call fire down, Lord, to smite them. And Jesus said, no. But many of us, when we are encountered, we encounter rejection, our reaction is to kind of get a little, a little argumentative. I, I'm speaking guiltily of myself, but you, many of us do that. But that's not what Jesus said. What did he say? He said, if they reject you, just shake the dust off your sandals as a testimony against them and move on. Mark quickly then moves from the apostles to John the Baptist. He set this scene. The apostles are going about as they were instructed. They're going about Galilee and not surprisingly word of this gets to the king. Now, the Herod in today's text is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great was anything but great. You may recall him. He was the horrible person, the monster, of Matthew 2. Where, after the Magi humiliated him, he ordered all the two-year-olds and younger in Bethlehem slaughtered. It's a real piece of work. And he was, he was ruthless. He was like many in, his, in, in, in that type of a position. He didn't care what one lick about anything godly. He was basically about power and influence. And he, he fathered a passel load of kids and had ten different wives. And the Herod in today's story is one of his sons. His name is Herod Antipas, the youngest son, and he was the ruler over Galilee, which is not to be confused with Herod Archelaus, also known as Herod the Tetrarch, because he ruled in Judea. Confused yet? Wait, there's more. As was often the case at the time, one family, an extended family, admittedly, ruled over a given country or, or, or a wide area. And the Philip in our story today, that's another one of his brothers. Herodias. Herodias is the daughter of Aristobulus, another brother. So when Herodias married Philip, she was marrying her who? Her uncle. Okay, that's not great. That wasn't bad enough. Herod Antipas somehow managed to talk Herodias into leaving Philip. And then he married her. Yes, 
incest was rampant among these families. And the tangled web of that incest created circumstances by which Herodias had a thing, had a beef with John the Baptist. And let's just be honest, this is not a Herod, this is not a moment in time thing in Scripture. If even a casual reading of Chronicles and Kings, you will see that there are plenty of kings that ruled throughout time that just had no regard for anything godly, any of his laws, any of that, and they just did horrible and terrible things. So which, all in all, I, I say all of that to say this. It makes how John the Baptist engaged this family all the more instructive for us. Let's return to the text. King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Heard that the disciples were creating quite a stir in his province. And continuing on, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, No, this is John whom I have beheaded. He has been raised. And as we read... The disciples were proclaiming that people should what? We just talked about it. Repent, right? That was, that was what the disciples, Jesus charged them to go and preach repentance. Herod decides that the power behind the disciples had to be John the Baptist because if you recall, and I don't expect you all to have this memorized, but in Mark chapter 1 verse 4, John was in the wilderness and he was preaching what? Repentance. So Herod's connecting the dots. He's going, okay, I got a bunch of religious fanatics out there, and they're preaching repentance. And they're very, very popular. The people are really into this. So it must be what? It must be that John the Baptist is raised from the dead. That's where the power is coming from. So it's no surprise that Herod thought the way he did. Herod might have been a little bit disturbed and a little bit agitated about all of this, but let me tell you, Herodias wasn't the least little bit troubled. She was mad. She was in a mindset of vengeance. And she was so mad that she used her own daughter to trick her husband and forced him into killing John the Baptist because she knew how to set him up. There are so many terrible things to speak about in this particular passage that we're just not going to do all of that. We're going to focus on a couple of things. Look with me again at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. We live at a time when infidelity and sexual immorality are broadly excused. Sadly, even within the church. And if anyone dare take a stand against infidelity or sexual immorality based on faith or scripture, for their stand they will be endlessly mocked. And Lord help you if the media gets a hold of it. Because if the media gets a hold of it, 
you will be dismissed as hopelessly clinging to ancient and silly moral convictions. Exactly the opposite of Romans 15.4. Right? By endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we have what? Hope. How does the world see us? As hopelessly clinging to bygone values. So things really weren't that different for John the Baptist. Well, the apostles, for that matter, in the preceding pit. Herod and Herodias could care less about God. They didn't care. They didn't care about the religious leadership at the time, or any of the judgments, or any of their moralizing. Wasn't really a, a, wasn't a concern. It wasn't even on their radar. And their lack of concern and indifference in some measure, maybe large measure, had to do and be empowered by their power and their influence and their wealth. And as far as they were concerned, they had no need of God. Doesn't sound any different today than any of the celebrities or politicians or um, academics for that matter. If you have enough power and enough influence, you don't need God. I mean, that's, how, that's what they think. If you examine today the manner in which those of us who believe in God and have faith convictions are treated by them, you will see that it is generally characterized that that's your personal choice. They're, perf they're okay with you having that privately. Don't bring it into the public square. It's a personal conviction. And if you really want to be dead honest about it, if you don't believe in God, what other conclusion could you make? Right? You're going to self-justify. You're going to figure out a way to make it fit in your worldview. So you're going to see people, fanatical people, as if you have a, if you have a conviction, a moral conviction, that's your thing. Now, don't impose that on me. So... Things today aren't any different than they were in Herod's days or any different in any day before that. I mean, this has been an ongoing struggle that people in power and, and influence have an, are, are susceptible, susceptible, it's not a given, but they're susceptible to trusting in their wealth and their power and not in God. John the Baptist, however, believed that everyone should know and obey God's law. No exceptions for those that are powerful. Their position doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether they're either in a political position or a religious position for that matter. Status, office, power, influence, they meant nothing to John the Baptist. Everyone was equally accountable to God. And he was willing to risk his freedom and ultimately his life proclaiming God's truth. And here's the thing that really struck me about John the Baptist. Now, let's face it. He was, by all accounts, he was, he was a bit of a loner and a, and, and, and a little bit off and out of step with all of mainstream culture. But he never watered down God's truth to accommodate culture. 
ever. So what should we do when God places a Herod or a Herodias in our path? When confronted by a moral or an ethical challenge, which matters more to us? What God thinks or what those in power think? Can we do what John the Baptist did? Certainly we could, but will we? Do we? You know, we started out this year speaking about loving our neighbor. Now think about it. You know, when your neighbor is a really godly person, they're really trying or they're nice and, you know, they're, they keep their yard clean. They're just really a great neighbor. You know, it's a little bit easier to love them and go over there and say, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? Right? But, if they're a person of power and influence and any time they, they catch a whistle, oh yeah, you know, my neighbor, he's a Jesus freak, you know. What happens if they're powerful? What happens if they've got an in? What happens if, they, if the second you have a little get-together at your house, they're calling the cops on you because they don't like you and they know somebody in City Hall or something? What happens then? What happens if they're, if they're a Herod or they're a Herodias? What then? How about loving them then? It gets harder, doesn't it? John knew the risk, and just like the prophet Nathan knew the risk when he confronted King David about Bathsheba and Uriah in 2 Samuel 12, I think every one of us would admit it takes an awful lot of guts to stick your finger in the face of a king and said, Thou art the man, thus saith the Lord. Would we have the guts to do that? I don't know. I'd like to think I would. I tend to be mouthy anyway, but you know, I, so I, I, I tend to think that I would. But would you really when they're that powerful and you know that they can have the power of, they could just have, let's face it, if, if David wasn't even partially a man after God's own heart, I would make the argument that the reason that Nathan survived that exchange is because he was and he felt shame. You think Herodias felt shame? You think Herod had any shame? You know, Nathan was fortunate. John the Baptist wasn't. But both of them held to their conviction. So do we trust God and Jesus enough to take a stand when those with no regard could care less about either of them? Peter had said it this way. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart, honor in your hearts, honor Jesus Christ as Lord and is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. You know, I had heard that verse quoted uh, innumerable times, and it's the, it, I mean, it's the, it is the verse for Ravi Zacharias's ministry to provide offense. It's called apologia, apologetics. You probably heard of the term. That's the verse. 
But I never heard anybody ever finish it. They usually stop at for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, yeah, there's a semicolon there. I see it. You know, I, did, I didn't do great in grammar, but I see it. But this, this sentence continues. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. I got to tell you, that's a challenge at times because it doesn't say do your very best to argue with them and humiliate them. It doesn't say draw attention to yourself. It says explain that you have a hope that sees the world differently than they do with gentleness and respect. I think we could take a great amount of instruction for that because there's no indication of tone in the... in. In Mark 6, verse 18, where John the Baptist is speaking to Herod, it just says, it is unlawful for you to be with your brother's wife. Not watered down, not filtered, not, no punches pulled. So there's no escaping it. Power and influence can enable the worst in us. Intoxicating at times to those who have it, and for some irresistibly attractive if they don't have it. How often have you heard it said or even possibly have said yourself, you know, if I was in charge, things would be different. Would they? It's a good question. Kings and religious leaders have been struggling to care about God once they have come into power and influence long before Herod and ever since. Today, as I said earlier, it's celebrities, academics, politicians, and sadly even some religious leaders that they struggle because power and influence can corrupt. So Lord Acton, 150 years ago, he's a British baron, who one of the things that he said is, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The more power you have, and the more influence you have, I submit, the more challenging it is, and you better be spending an awful lot of your time on your knees and in God's word in order to stay true. Because God, I want to be very clear here, there's, there's no honor in just saying, I'm not going to take any position of leadership. None. God calls some of us to lead. The difference is, who are you taking your leadership from because none of us are, are accountable to no one. We're always accountable to someone. I was a business owner for 35 years, and I would always say, yeah, that's overrated because you're accountable to your customer. There's always somebody that you're accountable to. And as a leader, particularly a religious leader or a political leader, or if you have the good fortune to be in that position, you have got the Lord that you are going to be accountable to. And how are you ensuring the fact that you're staying aligned with him every single day? I almost, I almost never get through a sermon without saying something about, are you reading through the Bible as a discipline every day? You know, for me, the last several years, it's been New Testament in 90 days. Three chapters a day, boom, you're done. It just, it, do it. It will give you a way of starting the day giving yourself the best shot to keeping God in His rightful place in your decision making. Now it's clear that Herod cared more about the opinions and possible judgments of his invited guests than he did about any offense to God and certainly more than he cared about John the Baptist and Herodias knew it. 
She knew that he was feckless, he had no spine, and that these nobles and all of these important dignitaries he invited to his party, there's not a chance in the world that if she set him upright, he'd ever back down. Because if you remember in the text, it did say that John the Baptist kind of feared, I mean, Herod kind of feared John the Baptist because he really couldn't figure it out. He couldn't put pigeonhole it. And Herodias didn't care. Her vengeance was so great she was going to set up her husband, and she did. Because she knew, I'm going to squeeze him in this circumstance, and it was a circumstance of his own making. Now, is there anything wrong with throwing a party and having all your guests over? Of course there isn't. But when your preoccupation with your position and your influence starts to get you in a position where you care more about that than you care about what God thinks, you're in, a, you're in trouble. You may not be in trouble that very second, but you're on the path. It's coming. Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and to ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may what? Take hold of that which is truly life. So do we care enough to take a stand against what God has clearly declared an offense? Chip sent an email out yesterday. That just, it's just mind-boggling the stuff that goes on even in the church. Are we willing to take a stand or do we make cultural accommodations so that we don't jeopardize our influence or our status? Are we taking hold of that which is truly life? Willingly risk whatever consequences that might go with taking that stand. Do we really trust God and for His future grace and His provision? And I'll admit, that can be struggle. That can be hard, especially when it comes to doing it with Gentleness and respect. I'm going to close with this thought here. If you are willing to take a stand like the apostles or John the Baptist, focus more on listening to the Holy Spirit within you. I'm presuming that you have surrendered your life to Jesus. And if you have, the Holy Spirit is within you and enables you every second of your sleep and your wake. All the time, Always, the Holy Spirit is with you. And ask Him for the words, and in my case, the tone. What tone of voice are you using? Are you coming across with gentleness and respect? Are you saying the words, but you're saying them so loudly that no one can actually hear how softly you might want to mean them? You've got to put the whole package together. The apostles were going to face rejection. Jesus knew that. It's a fact of life. If you're willing to take a stand and you're willing to share Jesus, people, you're going to encounter people that are going to think you have a third eye and you have just left the room. They'll want you to leave the room. They will, they will attempt to humiliate you. That's the easy bit. There are those that want you dead. Some places of the world, you do get dead. Jesus made one thing perfectly clear 
is that when they reject you or me, they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting him. Which in one sense makes, should make it a little bit easier. Most of the time, all we'll need to do is exactly what the apostles did. We'll just have to shake off their rejection just like the apostles shook off the dust. But if it costs us more, like it did John the Baptist, my prayer for all of us is that we won't bend to the moment. And that we'll trust God, really trust God for the strength needed to endure and to glorify Him exactly the way Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, I wish all of us could trust you like Jesus did. And it can be a struggle. And I pray, Lord, that each of us can take the example of the apostles or John the Baptist in some way, shape, or form and realize that for every single one of us, uh, one of us it always boils down to in, a, in any given moment, do we really trust you? Or do we bend to circumstances and just sort of say, well, you know, we can get by here. I pray, Lord, that that's not the case. I pray, Lord, that you would help everyone who heard this message to rely and trust upon, trust in you more and more each day. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.